Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Well, we talked last week about um, God's separation. So I want to go back and I want to do my best just to touch on a few scriptures and, and move on. But in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. We, we, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but there is, a, there is a change from verse 1 to verse 2. Verse 1, God created the universe, the heavens and the earth, which tells us that the center of God's universe is the earth, because that's where we are. God, has, we are the apple of his eye. Literally, that means we're the pupil of his eye. We are the center of his universe. We are what... We are the reason this universe was created, because God wanted to create a place for man. He values us that much. But somewhere between verse 1 and verse 2, there was a revolution, and we discussed that last week. I'm not going to go back through it. But the earth was ruined. That's why it says the, the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the waters. He was, the, the Spirit of God came in where there was no light. There was darkness. Doesn't mean that light didn't exist, both spiritual and physical. But at the earth's surface, there was no light, physically or spiritually. But God didn't leave it that way, which encourages me, because it doesn't matter how dark my life gets, there's always light available. I just have to get myself in the right spot, and God will come in and move in my life and make himself known to me. Specifically, it's, he is a personal God. We, we bandy about these, these um, phrases. Well, I need, you, you need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And sometimes we don't think, we say that so often, we don't think about what that means. <clears throat> I have a personal relationship with my wife. She, I, was, I was joking with Clark. He, he told me that somebody... There were two or three people that liked me. And I said, well, that, you know, you can add one with my wife sometimes. Because there are sometimes she likes me. There are some days she doesn't like me real well. But she always loves me. But she knows me. And this is the, this is the great thing about a, a marriage relationship. She knows things that nobody else knows. And she still loves me. She still chooses to be with me. God knows things that even she doesn't know, and he chose not only to love me and be with me and be in relationship with me, but he chose to come and sacrifice himself so that he could deliver me out of those things. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing here in, in these first few verses of Genesis. He's rearranging the earth. He's, he's bringing order to disorder. And in the midst of that, the light that already exists in the sun suddenly floods the earth. The earth has light and darkness, which, <clears throat> to be honest with you, I'm, 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 I'm a science guy. 
I can't help but look at everything through the eye of science because I was trained to too many years to do that. But we make a mistake sometime when we start trying to get all of our look at all of these passages, in particular in Genesis. What do they tell us scientifically? The point of the Bible is not to give us our science. The point of the Bible and the point of Genesis in particular is to give us a picture of salvation. It's to show us and reveal to us what God wanted to do and how he was going to come and intervene to bring us out of darkness and into light. And in doing these first few verses, he said, there is darkness, but I'm going to bring light into your darkness. And so he divided it. And, he gave, and in there, he gives us a choice. Amen? The, the life comes down to a choice. We, we touched on Isaiah 45, 18. I want to go there very quickly. It says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it. It says that that word established there means to firmly establish with stability. He made the earth stable. There are a lot of people in, in the world today that will tell you, oh, the earth's about to collapse. The ecosystem is going to, to, you know, it's so fragile that if we keep messing with it, it's all going to fall apart. E even the UN, which is no great arbiter of anything, you want a collection of misfits that know little and speak mountains from that little, it's the UN. But even the UN in the last couple of weeks has issued a study that said the worst case scenario for global warming will not happen. They're convinced of it now. If the UN is coming out and saying, yeah, we thought that, you know, we were going to have boiling oceans and, you know, and, and the planet was going to be uninhabitable in 75 years, but we think maybe we were wrong. Well, duh. God didn't make the earth fragile. He made it to endure. He established it. But notice the next phrase in that verse. Who did not create it in vain. We, we said last week, the, the, the verse there, or the, the phrase where it was says, the earth was formless and void is tohu vabohu. Right here in um, Isaiah, he says he did not create it tohu. God didn't create the earth with chaos. He created it orderly. Why? Who formed it to be inhabited. The whole purpose of the earth being here was not accidental. The whole purpose, the, the reason that you can go out today, companies go out and they drill and they, they find oil, they find energy, they find all these things that we need for modern life is so that God, it's, a, it's in God's plan, so that we can have an advanced technological world where the planet Earth that used to, with no technology, could support a few hundred million people is now supporting seven billion. And if the Lord tarries very long, that's going to be eight, nine, ten billion people. That's a whole lot of folk. But that's a whole lot of people that God is planted to be saved to populate the new heaven and the new earth. That's the whole reason he's done all this. He, he formed the earth to be inhabited. 
Then in, if you, you're there in, in um, Isaiah 45, if you go to Jeremiah 4, verse 23, Jeremiah, remember, Jeremiah was, is, is a um, um, prophet to Judah specifically, but he did prophesy to Israel too, but he prophesied to Israel just before they went into captivity. And the whole time he's prophesying to Israel, he's also telling Judah, keep an eye on what happened to Israel, because if you guys don't change, it's going to happen to you too. Now, in, in verse 23, he says, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. God revealed the light that was already present so that the darkness could also be revealed. And the amazing thing about darkness and light, if you've ever been in a cave, my brother and I worked at, at Marengo Cave for years during our middle school and high school years. You go down into one of these huge caves, you turn off all the lights, you're in total darkness. There's not one photon of light energy. You can hold your hand a, a millimeter from your eye. You cannot see it. There is no light at all. You take the tiniest little match and light it in a room four or five times the size of this room. And you may not see great detail, but you can see everything. It only takes a little bit of light to dispel huge amounts of darkness. God created the light. He was the light and he brought the light to a planet that had no light. That's what he's doing, <coughs> excuse me, doing here in Jeremiah, and we'll come back to that in a, in a minute. But specifically, let's go to Leviticus 19.19. This is one of the places where God did some separation. Leviticus 19.19, this is in the law. God says, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with one another or with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. Now here's the question. Why in the world is God against sowing mixed seed? As I grew up on a farm, and, and our farm was, you know, we grew, my dad used to joke, joke, we could grow three things, rocks, kids, and grass. And that was it. Rocks were the easiest. But as, as a ex or farmer, if you had really good soil and you want to you raise the best hay that there is, you're going to plant alfalfa and timothy together in a field. Those two plants growing together, you will get, you can sell that for huge amounts of money to any racetrack that has, has racing horses because they thrive on it. If you've got, like our farm, piddly poor soil, you dig down a quarter of an inch and you're into red clay, you can't grow those two. But you can grow um, clover and fescue and good, good hay to feed cows and feed other things, they'll thrive on it. And it'll grow in dirt that, that just hardly won't grow in anything, and it will make your soil better. So why did God say don't sow mixed seed when we know just in a practical standpoint from the, the modern technology and modern farming practices that mixed seed works real well as far as the farmers goes? 
Because he's not talking about seed. He is, specifically, he told the Jews, don't, don't plant mixed seeds. But his point wasn't the seed. His point was, you've got seed. Specifically, we, we, we read it earlier in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul said, I believe, therefore I spoke. Why did he do that? Because he has the same spirit of faith. His faith is hooked up to his, to his speaker, to his tongue. I think it's James, maybe Peter. I don't remember exactly right now. It's not in my notes. But he says, our, our, our lives, our mouths are like springs. And our springs sometimes shoot forth salt water. and Sometimes they f- shoot forth pure water. That's our mixed seed. We curse ourselves half the time. I mean, there are, I can't count the number of times that, that, you know, things are going wrong in my life. I won't testify for you, but I'll testify for me. And you go to praying. And it was like I said a couple of weeks ago, you know, one of my chief prayers when I go to bed at night is, God, please, I want to sleep till 4 o'clock. That would be great. 5 would be better. But 4 would be nice. And night after night, you know, Quarter to two, wham, you're awake. It gets old after a while. But I, I also admit that sometimes when I pray that, there's a little whine in my voice. I'm like, God, come on. There's not much faith. I'm spewing some salt and some fresh. There's a little faith, but not much faith. Why do we do that? Because we don't know who we are in Christ. We don't know the authority that we have. We don't know that, the, the, that my body has to submit to my will if I will take God's will and speak it out of my mouth. He's telling them, don't sow mixed seed because he doesn't want them mixing the seed of their words into their life. Remember, Israel is spiritually dead. When I used to, to go out evangelism explosion program, we would go door to door cold calls, which is an interesting thing to do. But we, before we would go out every week, we would remind ourselves, just keep in mind, you're going to go witness to people that only have one problem. They're deaf, blind, and dead. Other than that, they're nice folk. It's hard to communicate with someone that's deaf and blind and dead. I mean, Helen Keller was deaf and blind, and they got through to her eventually. But if she was dead, that's another problem. How do you get through to a dead person? God's Word, when you sow the seed by itself, pure Word, God's Word will bring life to the dead. And the light, the light will go on. That's why Paul said again in Corinthians, he said, we are called to go from faith to faith and glory to glory. What does that mean? That means we should be increasing in our revelation. And as our revelation increases, that glory increases, our faith increases, and we just keep progressing and progressing and progressing and progressing. Amen? And then we went through last week, There are examples. Rahab and Ruth were one. Elijah the Tishbite was one. These were were people that were not Jews, but God called them in and used them, anointed them. With with Rahab and and, um, um, 
Ruth, they're both in the lineage of Jesus. And yet, both, neither one of them would have been, you know, admitted to high society. They were, they were not, it's not people, that, their occupations or their background wasn't something that you talked about in polite society. Elijah, great man of God. Today's world, he took, what, 450 prophets of Baal and whacked their heads off. We would call him a mass murderer today. And yet God exalts him and says, hey, this is, this is somebody that you ought to emulate. Why? Because he was zealous for God. He was zealous to take the darkness out of Israel. It wasn't about the people. If those, if those prophets of Baal had hit their knees and repented, I don't think Elijah would have taken them out. But they stood up and they said, no, our God, Baal, is greater than your God, Jehovah. And it cost them their lives. Let's go back to, to Jeremiah chapter 4. We looked at verse 23 a minute ago. I want to look at verse 1 and 2 to start with. Now keep in mind, this, we're, we're, Jeremiah is prophesying here at the beginning to Israel. These are God's chosen people. These are the ten northern tribes. They have just as much right to the promises of God as Judah and Benjamin do in Jerusalem. But they have separated themselves from God's presence. To put this in, in a modern Christian context, these are born-again believers that have separated themselves from the church. Well, I've had people in my family. I know they're born again. They've, they've, they had a relationship with God at one time. And they left the church for one reason. <sighs> Building's just full of hypocrites. Probably mostly true. If you, depending on how you define hypocrites. If you're putting on a face that, that you are of something that you're not, then that's right. And there we all put on our facades. You know, I didn't get out of bed this morning and decide, yeah, I don't need to shave, I don't need to shower, I'll just throw on my, you know, my leisure pants and a t-shirt and come to church. No, I got up, I cleaned up, I shaved, I put on my dress clothes. Well, brother, do you dress this way all the time? No. In fact, I'm, I'm, if, if it's not in the Geneva Convention, these apparatuses that we are forced to put around our necks ought to be in the Geneva Convention under cruel and unusual punishment. But is that being a hypocrite? Is that putting on a facade? No, it's just trying to present the best to look the best you can. Amen? Nothing wrong with how you dress when you come to church isn't the important part. What your heart is. But if your heart is right, we need to, to put on our best for the world and for everyone we come to. Paul said it. I, I know I told you to go to Jeremiah. Stay there. But in Hebrews, let me just read this to you. This is Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 24 and 25, this is what Paul calls us to do in the church. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. You know what? A lot of the times when I have to deal with people that are stirring things up in the church, it's not stirring up love and good works. Amen? 
Sometimes and usually it's the other thing. Here's verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That's Israel. They have forsaken the assembly of Jerusalem. If, and, and this is Ahab's attitude, because Ahab was the one that took it to the zenith. He said, if I let these people go to Jerusalem to make their sacrifices, they'll go there and they'll pay their taxes there, and I'll lose money, and our, we'll, they'll end up just, we'll end up being back, and they'll be in charge, and I won't. And the most important thing is for me to be in charge. And so he went and built cities where they could worship, only they couldn't worship Jehovah there, so they worshiped idols there. They just picked up any god that somebody wanted. You want to worship? That's fine. Come do, make an idol. Make an altar. They're all the same. We all pray to the same God. No, we don't. I don't care what the Pope says. We don't pray to the same God. But he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. It was amazing the, the, on, on um, 9-12 of 2001, churches were packed out. People were scared. And when they realized this is not Armageddon, world's not coming to an end, it's like, okay, now I can go back to my real life. I went and touched base with God, made an agreement. Oh, God, if you keep us alive, I'll serve you. Yeah, well, I had my fingers crossed. God is not a safety valve. God is not a genie. He's not a little Buddha that you walk in, you rub his belly, and he grants three wishes. God is the God of the universe who wants a living, vital relationship with you every day, all day, in everything that you do. But in order for us to have that, we have to assemble ourselves together because there are going to be days when you're not strong and you will need me to come in and buck you up and give you some of my strength. And then there are going to be days when I'm not very strong and I need you to come in and buck me up and give me some strength encourage me. Tell me, hey, it's going to be all right. We're going over. We're not going under. We all need that, but we can't do that if we're not together. If we go our separate ways. It, it was tragic. I called someone one time. They had left the church, and, and I, I was concerned for them. I said, what's wrong? Well, they were offended. God help us for offenses. You know what? If you hang around me long enough, I'm going to offend you. Sometimes I may even do it half on purpose just to see where you are. There's enough mischievousness in me that that can't happen. You want to rate your spirituality? Ask somebody to do something or tell somebody you feel led to do something. Have them tell you no and then you see how you react. Because that's the true you that reacts when somebody says, don't do that. This is not easy sometimes. Amen? But we still need to be together. And this person, when I called them, they said, well, don't worry about me and my family. We watch five, six, eight, ten hours of, of Christian broadcasting a week. And I, I was bold. I'm getting bolder in my old age, too. Um, I said, that's great, and they'll feed you. But when somebody in your family needs prayer, they're going to come to your house and pray for them. They're going to come to the hospital and pray for them. 
If not, you're not assembling yourself together. And their, their, their attitude was, I can get my needs met, I can get fed, and I don't need anybody else. Yeah, you do. And not only do you need somebody else, but we need you. Amen? Now, Jeremiah, he's talking to those that have forsaken the assembly at Jerusalem. Verse 1, this is God speaking through Jeremiah. If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight. So you've got to come back to God and you're going to have to change. Then you shall not be moved. And you shall swear the Lord lives. How do you know the Lord lives? Because He's active in your life. In truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in Him. This is not just for Israel. It's not just for religious people. This is for every person. The nations are talking about Gentiles. We've already seen Ruth, Naomi, or yes, not Naomi, um, Rahab, Elijah, all came in and had vital, uh, active lives with Jehovah, even though they weren't born Jews. The nation shall bless themselves in Him, and in Him they shall glory. Now verse 3, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Now He's talking to those that are still in church. Hey, I pray. i got an active prayer life. I'm in the Word. I don't forsake the assembly of myself together. I'm better than those guys that are sitting at home this morning. Thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. That little phrase right there takes me right over to... There are several different places in the, in the Gospels where Jesus, it's recorded about Jesus preaching on the um, um, parable of the sower. Those are the ones that are sown among the thorns. They hear the word and the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. It's not about getting the word in you. It's about letting the Word dwell in you and grow in you until you start producing fruit from that Word. The Word isn't something that you just eat. It's also something that you plant. God gives us two kinds of seed. He gives us seed for bread, and He gives us seed to sow. If you eat your seed, you're going to have no crop. And if you sow your bread... Your bread will rot. You can try it. Go out in your garden. Not now. Obviously nothing grows now. But come spring, go to Kroger's, go to Myers, go to one of these stores and grab you a loaf of bread. Dig a hole, put it in the ground, cover it up. Come back in a few weeks and see what you've got. You'll have rotten bread. Bread doesn't grow. Bread doesn't bring fruit. So first we have to know and distinguish and get a revelation from God. You've given me your word. What part of your word is bread for me to eat? And what part is to seed to sow? That works with the word. It works with our money. It works with every part of your life. 
You have to discern where, what do I do with this word? How do I activate it in my life? And I'll tell you, one of the ways you activate it, Paul said it, we've already talked about it in 2 Corinthians 4, I believe, therefore I spoke. If I'm not speaking faith, then I guarantee you your default position is to speak worry and fear. And that, you won't like what you get when you speak worry and fear. You'll get more worry and more fear and manifest the works of the flesh more than you do the, the fruit of the Spirit. But notice what he says in verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. He's talking to Jews. They're circumcised the eighth day. These are circumcised people. Why is he telling them to circumcise themselves? He says, and take away the foreskin of your heart. He's not talking about physical behavior, physical action. He's talking about a heart issue. You have to change on the inside before you can change on the outside. Paul tells us in the New Testament that we are to fight the good fight of faith. It's a good fight because we always win when we stay in faith. But where is that battle? 90% of that battle is between your ears. When the enemy comes in and he says, yeah, you're not going to make it, this sickness will kill you. You're going to be tempted to say something. In fact, I'll be honest with you. When you get a revelation about how powerful your own tongue is, for most people that I know, it was certainly true for me. The first manifestation of that is I just couldn't say a lot because I was trained for an entire lifetime to speak negative things. Charles Capps used to say, if God came down and he just appeared to you in the flesh, stood right in front of you, and he said, whatever you say, you will have. Most of us would say, well, that just thrills me to death. Put you in the grave. You just said it. You got thrilled and it killed you. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. God knows, you know, I've met people that get so caught up in their confession and what they say that you can't joke, you can't tease, you can't play, you can't have any fun. I'm not talking about that. I, I, I listen to Mark Hankins a lot. I love Mark Hankins. The man preaches faith. He lives faith. But he said when, when he was a, um, he was a rounder and his dad, he was a PK. His dad was a pastor. Uh, one of his favorite stories is about the Wednesday night he called his dad from the jail. Called it, got his mom, called his house, and said, Mom, come get me. And she said, Well, it's Wednesday night. We got church. We'll be there later. <laughs> and she let his little honey sit in jail. And then four deacons and his dad came to bail him out. And he, he said the, the, the thing that, that impressed him the most, there was one deacon that kind of, because he was slunking along, you know, he's like a dog with his tail tucked. He's been caught. And one deacon held back with him. He said, Mark, going to be all right. You're going to be all right. He said that marked him. He got chewed out a lot. He got disciplined. He had so there were price there was a price to pay for what he did. But those words stuck with him more than anything. But he he got saved. He he went off to Bible school, 4 years of of undergraduate work to get a bachelor's degree in I don't know religious studies or whatever. It was a Christian school, good school. But in one of those times, he, he always talks about his mother plead the blood. 
he said, you know, he talks about one time he brought a, a girl home, he said, and he was in love, and, you know, this was the 60s, and she had a very short, skimpy skirt on, and he said, and as soon as I brought her in the door, he said, I heard mama, I plead the blood. <laughs> and his girlfriend wasn't in church, and she looked at him and said, what'd she say? He said, don't worry about it, never mind. Well, when he came home from Bible school, he sat down with mama, he said, mama, I'm, I'm, I'm a little concerned about your theology here. You're always pleading the blood, and I don't see that anywhere in, in the Bible. Where does it say that we plead the blood? He said, I don't know, I just plead the blood over your mind. Well, what he came to realize, he was educated beyond his experience and beyond his intellect at that point in time, which, unfortunately, I've met a lot of people that are educated beyond their intellect, it kind of, you know, um, um, one commentator I, I know or listened to said one time, anybody that believes this, I can guarantee you they went to graduate school. It's the only way you could believe something like that to be that stupid. But he sat down with his mom. He said, I just, I'm, I'm concerned about your theology. What he come, came to find out was she said, and that was the catchphrase for her, I plead the blood. What she meant and what God heard was, I have faith in the blood of Jesus to be active in this situation and to change the situation for the better. She didn't phrase it precisely, theologically correct, but it worked because she put faith in the blood of Jesus. So when I, and, and believe me, we need a lot more teaching on, on what we speak about and how we speak. Because the best of us are not very good at it. But at the same time, don't run off in the other ditch and become sourpuss. And just, you know, you can't say anything. Well, that's just, I wouldn't say that. Well, nobody's asking you to say it. God doesn't want us to get so caught up. He understands if your heart is right, your words may not be precisely what they need to be. But if they really need to change, if your heart is right, you'll be open and he'll start changing what you say. But it's a heart issue. That's what he's telling the, the, the men here, the, the residents of Judah. He said, break up your fallow ground. Don't sow among thorns. Thorns there specifically is a reference to the curse of the fall. God said you're going to, to farm and you're going to plant and you're going to raise crops and you're going to get return, but you're going to do it by the sweat of your brow. It's not easy getting stuff to come out of the earth. It's not easy getting up going to work every day to earn a living. Amen? And even those that are, are I don't know if they're fortunate or not, but are fortunate enough, they're, you know, I call them trust fund babies. Their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents were rich. Sometimes that becomes more of a curse than a blessing. Amen? So we can't measure our spirituality just by that. What we have to measure our spirituality by is, as my heart circumcised. He says, you men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, do this. Circumcise your hearts, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. God is calling us to change. But now, keep in mind, He hasn't called me to be the agent of your change. Now, as a pastor, He may call me to preach on some things that are going to make people uncomfortable. 
will offend people. The gospel can be offensive. But on a personal basis, he doesn't ask us to go interfere in other people's lives. He calls us to pray for them, speak faith over them, encourage them. Be that deacon that held back with Mark Hankins and said, you're going to be all right. Nothing looked like it was going to be all right. He was a rounder. He was in the wrong place, thinking the wrong things, doing the wrong things, hanging with the wrong things. He wasn't being influenced by the wrong crowd. He was the leader of the wrong crowd. And to be honest with you, I've, have, I've met with too many parents over the years in classrooms where they say, well, my son or my daughter, they just hang around with the wrong people. And I've watched their kid. Their kid's the leader of the pack. They're, not, they're influencing everybody else for bad. They're not necessarily being influenced. They're doing the influencing. But even in that, we can speak life into that situation. We need to let the Holy Spirit use us to come into the darkness and hover and pray and speak faith. Stand up for them. And say, this is not going to be this way forever. Especially when it comes to your family. You got kids, you got grandkids, you got um, nieces, nephews, aunts, uncles. Find a promise. Find a piece of the word. And stand up. Now, it's going to take effort, it's going to take faith, and it's going to take persistence. We were in Hebrews, and I don't remember, I think it's in Hebrews 9 or 10, where Paul says it's through faith and patience that we inherit the promises. The interesting thing is when you look at those words in the Greek, one is in the masculine tense and one is in the feminine. What's that got to do anything? Remember last week we talked about God separated man. He said, in the beginning I created man. I created them male and female I created them. He separated man into two sexes so that they could, and then immediately said, go forth and multiply and replenish the earth. He separated them so that they could come together and give new life. Faith and patience are the male and the female when you marry them. And patience is not just... God, I'm believing you to do this. I'm believing you to do this. I'm tired. God, just come on. i got to rest here while you do it. Take over. Oh, it's never going to change. That's not patience. Patience, biblical patience, looks a lot like biblical faith. It's you get up and, and you prayed for, your, for your, your family. You prayed for someone that's in relationship with you. And instead of getting better, they got worse. Well, I don't care. This is just the, you know, every place in, or not every place, but in a lot of places in the New Testament, when Jesus would cast the demon out of someone, that demon would tear them before they left. That's just the demon tearing before he goes. Don't get discouraged when you pray for a situation and it gets worse. Be encouraged. The devil's doubling up his efforts. Why? Because he knows he's defeated and he knows you're on to something and he's got to stop you now. If he doesn't stop you now, you're going to wreak havoc in his kingdom. So he will start doubling up and bringing, well, I don't think I want to stir up that fight. You're in the fight. If you don't fight back, it doesn't take a horde of demons to defeat you. It only takes one little pipsqueak demon if you won't fight back. When you start fighting back and you start getting some, some effectiveness to your faith, 
and you start learning how to stand on the promises and see things change, then suddenly you've got bigger enemies. But guess what? You've got bigger allies too. Now we had a saying in Bible school, new levels, new devils. Well, that's kind of encouraging. Well, you also need to know new levels, bigger allies. Either bigger angels, stronger angels, or more angels. They, the, Charles Cap said it years ago. The greatest um, tragedy, or, or, or um, oh, he used a different word, in, in Christendom is the unemployment level of our angels. Because Hebrews tells us the angels sit and wait to hearken unto the word of God. And to be honest with you, a lot of them are sitting there saying, I can't go to work because I'm not getting any commands. And it's not saying, okay, you angel, you go do this job. It's standing up and saying, God, you said this about my family. You said this about me. You said this about my body. You said this about my finances. And I'm believing you and I'm speaking it. And I'm declaring. My checkbook says I'm, I'm going to be overdrawn. I declare that I have sown my seed. I have paid my tithe. And I've sown seed beyond that. And this checkbook's going to get full. I speak life to that checkbook. And then I start looking for more work. I start looking for better jobs. It may not be that, that, that you're in the, just because you've got a job doesn't mean that's the last job you're going to have. If you're having a hard time making ends meet, keep sowing the seed and start believing for a better job where you can work less hours and make more money. I always would rather work less hours and make more money. Be more effective. But then don't turn that blessing into a curse by using those extra hours that you've got to sit around and watch TV and fill, fill your head with nonsense. How many times have you known somebody that believed God for finances and, or believed God for a boat, and then suddenly you don't see them from you know, the warm season to the cold season because they're at the lake every week. God blessed them with something and they turned it into a curse. We need to take God's blessings and allow them to be blessings. Amen? Now, we looked last week at, at this, the Samaritan woman. And I want to I go back and take one last quick look at that. In John chapter 4, God is, or, or Jesus is, his eyes are set on Jerusalem. He's going to face the cross. That's where he's headed. Now, now in this story... This literally happened this way. But I also want you to apply this spiritually speaking. Uh, um, Peter, in 2 Peter 3.8, said when he's talking about the return of Jesus, he said, don't forget this one thing, that a single day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand, days, a thousand years is like a single day. God doesn't always, just like in, in Leviticus 19 earlier, sometimes God talks about seed, and He's not really meaning seed. In this story in, in Mark 4, about, or excuse me, John 4, about Jesus going to Jerusalem, and He stopped at the Samaritan village. He stopped at Jacob's well. Now keep in mind, when Jacob died, he willed that well to Joseph. 
So really, this is also Joseph's well. And Jesus stops there and he's, he's fulfilling a promise. And I'm, I'm a, I don't have time, I'm just running out of time. So I'm not going to go back and talk about that one. I can share it with you later if you really want to know. But in, he, he's at this well and the woman is there. She's an outcast. Even the Samaritans who are the lowest of the low won't associate with this lady. She's that low. She's the, the scum of the scum. And yet Jesus, she's shocked at the beginning saying, why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Jews wouldn't, wouldn't usually talk to any woman, let alone a Samaritan woman. And she's drawing water and he talks to her about living water, how he's the living water. If, if you ask for the water from me, I'll give you water and you'll never thirst again. One more time, he's talking about water. He doesn't mean water. Believe me, this lady got the living water and she was out the next day to draw water at the well because they got thirsty. He's not talking about literal water, he's talking about spiritual water. He's talking about meeting her spiritual needs. But after he's dealt with her, she goes back into the village and she comes back out. And she leads the host. And you have to remember, the Samaritans all wore white turbans. So in John 4 verse 35, Jesus makes this statement. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And what he sees is the entire uh, village of Sychar coming out of their village, and all of these men have these white turbans on, and that's the field that's white unto harvest. And then he, he if you read on, he, it says that in verse 43, Now after two days... He departed there and went to Galilee. Now think of this in, in end times scenario. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. Jesus has one thing in his mind today. The Father has one thing in mind. That is to get us to the new heaven and the new earth. But before he can do that, he needs to fulfill some, some promises to the Jews because he made unconditional promises to um, Abraham and to others that have never been fulfilled. So he has to still go back and deal with the Jewish people. But on his way to that event, he wanders by this Gentile village called Sychar, us, and he starts getting people saved, and suddenly he decides, I'm going to stick around here for an extra two days. Remember, a day is as a thousand years? That's the church age. And the fields are white unto harvest. The whole church age is all about getting the Gentiles saved. That's why we need to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That's why we need to stay uh, uh, concentrating on encouraging one, one another, stirring one another up to love and good works. I, this always reminds me, especially when we, we deal with, with love. When I taught anatomy, it, it grosses people out, but I'm going to give a, a fairly accurate description. You look inside your chest, inside your abdomen. You've got dozens of organs there. And they're all laying right next to each other. You've got your heart inside this, this wrapping, very tough pericardium. 
And your heart is constantly moving out, moving in. Have you ever wondered? I remember as a Boy Scout, we would go on 20, 25, 30 mile hikes occasionally if you really wanted to, to you know, endure some tough day. We'd go on 50 mile hikes. Invariably, the biggest problems were when you got real hot and real sweaty, you'd get chafing on your thighs. Just from taking step after step after step, you could rub the inside of your thighs raw. And I remember our scout leader and my dad would always carry um, cornstarch. And when people, you could see them, you start out walking normal, by after about three hours you're walking like this because your, your legs are chafed. And they'd always pull you off in the weeds, pull your pants down, grab a handful of, of cornstarch and throw it up between your legs and, and get that cornstarch and your legs would, would rub and they won't chafe. If you've got all these organs and they're all lying right there in the middle, why are they not chafing one another? Why are they not rubbing themselves raw? Because you get in there, they're not tough and calloused like your hands. You work for a living, um, you will develop calluses. It's your body's protection to protect your skin from rubbing on things. You don't have any calluses in there, so why don't your organs all get chafed? Because you have all these little bitty cells in there called serous cells, and they have one function. They secrete water and oil. Always reminds me of the parable of the Good Samaritan, where he poured in the oil and the wine. Wine is primarily water. What does that do? It lubricates. That serous fluid lubricates, and if you've ever lost that lubrication, if you've ever known somebody, or if you've ever had pleurisy, pleurisy is an inflammation of the lining of your lung, and every time you breathe, that lining is inflamed, and it says, don't do that, that hurt, I don't like that, so here. And you, you can't stop breathing, so you just live in pain till that inflammation goes. Love is the, the, the lubrication of our relationships. When we try to have a relationship and we don't walk in love, we start chafing on one another. And you get us together and, oh, you just drive me up the wall. It, just, it hurts me to get around you. I mean, I just, you know, the Bible says don't lay hands on, on, on a man suddenly, but I want to lay hands on you suddenly. That's where love comes in. Love keeps us. We are to rub one another. If you look back at the, the, the pyramids, and no one's exactly sure how they built all these pyramids, but one of the theories is, because you can go today, they're, they're 4,000 years or older. You can go today, you cannot put a piece of paper between the joints. And one of the theories of how they did that was they would bring the block in and they would move it back and forth and have those joints rub on one another until they wore down the high spots and low spots and they were joined perfectly. That's what we do to one another. You may be knocking a high spot off me and I may be filling in a low spot on you, but without a little lubricant called love, the love of God, it hurts. It's Even with lubricant, sometimes it generates heat. We have great lubrications in our car, but you still got to have an entire system just to pull the heat out. Well, we need a, a, a system in the church, which we have. Walk in love, forgive one another. 
Amen? Because if we don't, the heat will, will, will build up and suddenly you'll have a flame. You'll have a fire. I tell you, I've, I've pastored in some churches where the only job you had was putting out fires. That's not fun. If you've ever been on a job, I've been on some jobs that I, in fact, when I was first out of college, I worked at Philip Morris making cigarettes. I was a foreman. Only job I ever had, I couldn't do anything and I was expected to do everything. Everything was my fault and I couldn't lift a hand to help anybody do anything. But the, the corporate philosophy at Philip Morris at that time was company people stayed on union people. And I was told by my boss more than one, that guy gets out of line, you go cuss him out, you go chew him out, and you go read him the riot act. I made it a whole 10 months. And I finally just said, this ain't for me. And I took like, and I'm, we're, we're, I'm going back to 1975, and I took a $5,000 a year cut in pay to leave that job and go to another job. Because it was not worth two hours before I left the house to go to work, my stomach would go in a knot. And three hours after I got home, it took that long for my stomach to unknot so I could go to sleep. I was miserable all the time. Why is that? Because they thrived on conflict. They thought conflict was the way to get something done. It doesn't work. You might get some out of people. You got slaves, you whip them hard enough, you'll get something out of them. When your back's turned, they're not going to work. We, we stir one another up through love. I don't ask you to do things because I want something out of you. I ask you to do things because I feel impressed of the Lord. This will help the situation. And when we're all praying for one another, and we're all giving one another the benefit of the doubt, I've learned in my life that there, there is one immutable truth. I judge myself by my intentions and I judge you by your actions because I don't know your intentions. That's why people have a hard time being in relationship with people. When I act like a jerk, I may not be intending to act like a jerk. It just comes out that way. But all you see is the jerk. You don't know my intentions. You don't know that I'm really trying to, to be nice. I just got a thousand other things pressing in on me and, and life squeezing in on me and this is the best I can muster right now. At least I haven't picked up a ball bat and started swinging. Well, if you're walking in love, rather than getting offended, you start praying, what's going on? You might ask a question. Love changes everything. That's why it's what we're called to do. Amen? Now, let me throw this one last thing. Because I said earlier I wasn't exactly sure where I was going and I didn't go to any of what I thought my options were. But all of this has to be done in faith. Paul said in, in um, well, let me give you this one, Philippians 1, verse 19. Paul's talking to the Philippian church, and the Philippian church was, was out of their poverty they gave to Paul of material things. But, and Paul writes back to him, he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. When we pray for people, we can bring a, supp a spiritual supply to them that's not available 
unless we pray. That's why we need to walk in love towards another so that we're not offended. Because when I'm offended at you, what I want to do is call fire down from heaven on your head. And if I'm walking in love, I realize that that's not the spirit I want to be in. So I start praying for you and asking for God to meet whatever need it is. God, I don't know what the need is. Well, how do you pray for that? I may just have to pray in the spirit until I get a release. Well, that may take a long time. What better things do you have to do than to help a brother or a sister in need? That's what we're called to do. We think our lives should consist of, of, of going to work, having a good meal, and relaxing and enjoying ourselves. And God's saying, my call is for you to be available for, to me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I don't care if this interferes with your show. Miss your show. I don't care if this interferes with your sleep for a little while. Miss your sleep. If I've called you to pray, hit, the, hit your knees and start praying. Now, if you're, let me give you a little wisdom. If you're working and you're getting paid to work, don't spend your time praying unless you're praying while you work. Amen? Because we also have to be honest about this. If the man's giving you, you know, a dollar an hour to work, then you owe him a dollar an hour's worth of work. Now, I realize that dates me because, you know, nobody works for a dollar an hour anymore unless it's a grandchild, and even they usually have higher wages than that. But, but Paul said, I, I believe, therefore I speak. In that, he said, we have the same spirit of faith. That spirit of faith, um, I've heard this old saying, the spirit of faith will make you swing out over hell on a cornstalk just so you can spit in the devil's eye. It'll give you the courage to things that'll just scare the bejesus out of you. If you didn't have faith, why am I doing this? Well, you're doing it because you, you have an, an unction or a, a prompting of the spirit to go do this. But when we do this, we have four weapons to our name. These are our four weapons, and I'm going to close with this. We have his name. Acts chapter 4. The man at the gate, beautiful. Peter came up to him and said, Silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. When nothing else works, the name of Jesus will always work. We also have his word. Psalm 138, the very last part of the second verse says, For you have magnified your word above your name. Now that's something. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And yet God says, I have magnified my word above my name. Why? Because my name is contingent on my word being good. If I tell you I'm going to do something and I don't get it done, my name may be mud for a while. Maybe that I tried, I honestly tried, I just couldn't get it done or other things got in my way. But I will tell you this, the proverb says, a good man will swear to his own hurt and change not. There have been many things I've promised I'd do and I need no more and got out of my mouth and I thought, oh Lord, why did you say that? You do not want to do that. But I had already given my word. And sometimes it costs me. Sometimes it costs me a lot of time. It costs me discomfort. Sometimes it costs me money. But if I, if I say it, I'm going to do my best to do it. 
Why? Because that's my name, that's my reputation. If my name and my reputation go down, then the name of Christ and his reputation goes down because I'm representing him. And then there's his blood. Ephesians chapter 1 says that we have redemption in his blood. Chapter 2 says that we're brought near by his blood. Romans 3, 5 says that the blood of Jesus is our propitiation, which is a very interesting word. It's, it basically means that God chose to take your sins far from him because he was merciful. It literally refers to the mercy seat of the ark. It's where God, people say, well, God doesn't remember your sins. That doesn't mean that God's forgetful. He still has, you know, omniscience. He still knows about everything, but he chooses not to remember. There's a difference between not knowing about it and choosing to not remember it. Choosing to not remember it means I'm aware of the situation, but it doesn't influence any of my judgments or any of my actions. That's what God does. And then in Hebrews 9, the blood cleanses us. Thank God for the blood. And then the, the fourth weapon, and this is the biggest one, is praise. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter's talking, he says, The genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom he have not seen you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If we truly believe, we will rejoice, because we know the outcome. You know, it's like uh, uh, occasionally there's a big game on and you just can't see it. But you want to see it. But you got to work. What do you do? You set your DVR to tape it. And then you put out the word. Don't anybody talk to me about the game. Game's over. But you can watch it and not know what the outcome is. I have never been able to do that successfully. I always hit that fast-forward button and I go to the end and I find out who wins, who loses, because I don't want to have to deal with the suspense. Then I go back and watch the game and, you know, I may cry a little more if I know I'm going to lose. I also rejoice a little more when, this, when, when my team's down 32 to nothing. Oh, but we're coming back. I already saw the end. We rejoice with unexpressible and joy and full of glory because I know where the end of this is going. He may kill me on the spot today, but all he's done is send me to my reward. Doesn't matter how bad it gets, I know in the end I win. We all win. So I can praise God for the victory even when all I see is defeat. Amen? So that's our call. That is our call with one another. When, when you act like a jerk to me, I'm called. I know where this goes. We're going to be next door neighbors when we get to heaven. If I really get offended at you, we may be roommates. God may make us room in the same room. He may say, just go spend about 10,000 years together. See if you can get along. Well, I'd rather get along with you now. Amen? 
I want to walk in love because as we walk in love, as we, as we express the joy of the victory, no matter how we behave, I know that's not your heart. Well, how do you know that? Because I believe you're a Christian. I believe ultimately, no matter where you are, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know the shoes that you've walked through. I don't know what pressures are in your life right now that's causing you to behave the way you're behaving. I just know if you're not being nice, I need to pray more and work harder not to be offended. Now believe me, that second part, not easy because we still have a flesh that wants to get involved and it says, well, you don't have any right to, to, to say that, talk to me that way. Well, no, and I don't have a right to get offended. I have a right to hit my knees. That's the only right I have. Hit my knees and pray for you. And hope that when the, when the tables are turned and I'm the jerk and you're the one on the receiving end that you'll pray for me. And love will be the lubricant between us to keep us from chafing each other. Amen? Just let us slide by and keep everything slick and smooth. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.